Welcome to BDO's Legal Tech Talk podcast. We're joined by judges and legal professionals to discuss emerging trends, regulatory updates, and the latest headlines. We'll provide tips to help your law firms and legal departments make the most out of legal tech. Hi, everyone. I'm Jared Crafton, BDO's Forensic Technology Practice Leader. And I'm Daniel Gold, BDO's Managing Director of the Enterprise eDiscovery Managed Services Practice. Let's get started with this episode's exciting topic. All right, welcome to another BDO Legal Tech Talk episode. We are so happy to be joined in the virtual podcast recording studio, the one and only Stephanie Clerkin. If you don't know Stephanie, I don't know where you've been in the world of e-discovery. She is literally everywhere. Now, full disclosure, Stephanie, we've known each other for, for some time, but you are yeah. an ASED speaker, an ILTA speaker, a RELFEST speaker. You have the Stellar Women in e-discovery Innovation Award, and you are a self-proclaimed Excel nerd. What don't you do, Stephanie? Welcome to the program. Thank you. Well, the easy answer is I don't sleep. <laughs> That is a good way of putting it. There you are. Well, welcome to the program. We're so happy you could join us here. We're hoping we could start off with just by having you talk about who you are and what you do, Stephanie. Sure. So I am the Director of Litigation Support at Core Artillery, which is a plaintiff's firm that focuses in complex, massive litigation. I'm based out of St. Louis, but we also have a Chicago office and newly added San Diego office. Been here since 2013, and somehow I have a 10-year anniversary coming up this year, which just shocks me and everybody else that we haven't, you know, hurt each other over these years, working together so closely. But yeah, I came, I actually came out of the finance accounting world before this, so this was my first foray even into kind of e-discovery and legal, and I've been, uh, you know, self-taught mainly along the way. It's amazing. So you've got a bit of a, almost like a BDO background here. So you've done fraud investigations, you've done data analytics projects. Jared, she is right up your alley here with, with what she's done in the past. I love it. You must love data as much as we do. I used to build a lot of uh, damage models, which is where the Excel nerdiness started and just continues to this day. Fantastic. Have you always been on the plaintiff side? No. Consulting world was, it was just what, however the clients fell. Legal world, yes, only plaintiff side. When it comes to e-discovery at a plaintiff's law firm, what are some of the unique challenges you face when managing e-discovery? Well, the, the biggest one is, while I said I'm director of litigation support, I'm director of myself. I'm a department of one. Right now, we are in the process of trying to expand that team for you know many reasons. One being, we just need another person. The limited kind of resource factor. I mean, it hits every aspect of, you know, what I deal with, whether it's e-discovery or just you know, assisting with the project management side of the cases. It definitely requires a lot of organization and automation and, you know, thinking through ways to make things more efficient that if I had a whole team of people, I might not um, have had a chance to kind of streamline. It also helps that I'm just naturally very frugal. And even though I know it's not, you know, my own money, I'm still very cautious when it comes to, you know, spending and making sure, you know, we're approaching that the right way. 
The second one we run into all the time is just cooperation with, you know, opposing counsel. And I don't think that's unique necessarily to the, the plaintiff's world. I noticed over the years we get underestimated a lot. Like, I'll get to talk to opposing counsel sometimes. And they're like, oh, we can't believe that you have somebody in-house that has, you know, an RCA, for example. Or you have relativity in-house. That's rare. Those type of conversations ultimately lead to better cooperation. I'm a big fan of being able to at least talk to my counterparts if I can, because it makes everything easier when it comes to e-discovery. That's not always the case, but when that does happen and we can actually work together on anything technical, especially it's a night and day difference on how things, you know, run. Stephanie, there's a lot to unpack there with that, with that, with that answer. So one of the things that came to mind was, is when you're talking about you know, working in a plaintiff's law firm and technology and the decisions you have to make is interesting because Jared and I talk to a lot of folks that are at, you know, defense law firms or in-house corporate legal departments and the decision calculus about the investment in legal technology there is got to be different than it is working at a plaintiff's law firm. And you were saying, yes, and you know, I'm frugal with my own money, right? And and I'm sure the firm loves that, that do you apply that same logic to your decisions about investing in legal tech at the firm? But how is that calculus different? How is that decision making different at a plaintiff's law firm, you think? Well, it's definitely not as standardized as a lot of other, you know, bigger, especially defense side where they might have a whole, you know, internal procurement team that does this. This is always going to be a case-by-case basis for most of the, you know, technology decisions, unless it's something where I can say, wow, we can apply this to every case in the future, and I'm going to test it, obviously, and have a good, you know, scenario of why. And sometimes when it comes to ROI, it's, it's not even the, we're going to bill it to a client type scenario. It's, it's going to save me X amount of hours. I've done that on even super small purchases, like a $60 PDF plugin for $60. It saved me 15 hours of time. That's an easy, that's an easy sell. But a lot of times I do get approached with why don't we have X technology? And it's somebody gets a marketing email and it's usually I've heard of the product. Sometimes it's something I've never even heard of, which I might go Google because now I'm intrigued. But I find that sometimes people think let's just buy this and it's going to fix this problem. And the answer is most of the time, no, that's not going to fix it. And, and is that really what we want? Like, let's, let's think this through more. So it's decisions like that. I mean, after you kind of get the idea of, okay, well, how are we going to use this? Then it comes down to yes, cost, but also you know, reliability, you know, support. We've gone with products that may cost more, but I know firsthand their support team is amazing and that is well worth a premium. You know, security these days is a huge consideration. And then it has to be somewhat easy to use if possible, because again, if it's just me trying to learn it, I have a finite amount of time and I either need to be able to learn it, teach somebody else or rely back to that support team I just talked about for them to kind of help me get up to speed. So it's a lot of moving parts more so than just how much is this going to cost and is this going to make us money? With such a focus on cost containment, do you feel like maybe you're maybe a little bit more empowered to take some risks on innovative technology? I've definitely looked into proof of concepts with some of the, you know, more advanced analytic programs, seeing, you know, 
Because really, I mean, while some of that is, it is expensive, if it can save X amount of review hours, that's a real, you know, scenario I can propose and have it worthwhile. Unfortunately, sometimes when it, those type of situations come up, the data is the problem. It's not the tool. It's not the price. It's the type of data we have just is not very, it just doesn't work with that type of program. Think, think handwritten notes, large spreadsheets. It's not your typical, let's put this in an analytic program and get some great, you know, charts and graphs. So sometimes that is my biggest constraint too, just the type of data we have. Do you think that there are some lessons that can be learned that could be applied across the board from what you have done to the defense world as well? In other words, one of the other answers that we're also unpacking from the from the first one is that you were talking about collaboration, right? And that has often been seen as being like this pejorative in the litigation world, right? Don't cooperate, you know, don't collaborate, et cetera. Do you think that your utilization of technology, the way you apply technology and the way that you approach matters, there's some lessons learned from a collaboration perspective, et cetera. Absolutely. And, you know, just talked about this on a panel at the University of Florida's e-discovery. Great timing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, two weeks ago when, you know, it was myself, another plaintiff's attorney, and then Scott Milder from the defense side. And it was a great mix because we all have the same challenges and we all had agreed if the you know attorneys in charge of the cases just let even the tech let support people talk to each other the amount of time saved in unnecessary disputes are prevented because we we are talking the same language and especially it makes it even easier if we use the same technologies you know as each other i've worked with people where i asked are you using relativity? And they say, yes. And I said, great. Well, can we get this field? And they said, sure. Can we get this field? I said, yeah, it's a system field. Here we go. And that just fixed three months of emails back and forth that we didn't really need. So even if it's just at that level, that's a starting point. And obviously I'm not an attorney, so I don't get involved with you know, the case disputes as much, but yeah, if we can take at least the technical productions disputes out of the mix as much as possible. It just frees up everyone's time. Talk to us about that a little bit more, right? So how much time are you spending for each one of your matters just talking about the, the technical disputes? Because that's a, that's a huge point you're bringing up. Well, in one of our cases where early on, it was pretty much neither side would let me or their counterpart talk to each other for, I don't know, three or six months. It cost me two, I had to quantify it because we always had a hearing on it, 200 hours of my own time to fix production issues, where afterwards, looking back, they could have been fixed. It, I mean, it still would have taken some time, but a tenth of the time and saved all that. And it was all just very, um, very frustrating from my part because I knew what was wrong. I just wasn't allowed to say, can you change this one setting that would fix all of these, you know, load file issues you're having. And it's stuff like that, though, that I don't think people necessarily realize how time-consuming what seems minor can be. Do you find yourself working with the same counsel on the other side um, over and over again? And are, do you build rapport with them and do you kind of get into a rhythm with them over multiple cases and, and kind of streamline some of these processes you're talking about? 
I'd say we have maybe a handful I've seen on similar cases, but it's a lot of times very new team. It's every almost time. always starting from scratch. So it's been very beneficial. A lot of times I see, you know, the opposing counsel I'm like, oh, I know their counterpart in my role. So I'm going to see them at Eltacon and just say hello. Uh, you know, some of the relationships I've developed just personally have helped be able to reach out when it comes to, you know, the e-discovery technical side of things. Yeah, that makes sense. And what about other other plaintiffs firms? You know, do you have a lot of other you know plaintiffs that support folks reaching out a lot? I mean, I imagine it's you know it's a community. You guys see each other at uh, conferences. You, you struggle with a lot of the same issues. I mean, are you connecting a lot as a community? Yes, I mean, there's a whole. Um, it's the Clef Group, the Complex Litigation uh, E-Discovery Forum. There's there's an email group that I'm part of where, you know. There, there's a ton of activity always in that. But then separately, I have a lot of people just reach out from seeing me on LinkedIn. And sometimes I recognize the names, again, from random you know, conference circuit. But I've met so many people just saying, hey, I didn't realize others have someone, you know, like in my role at the plaintiff's firm. And we just talk, you know, brainstorm some ideas and, you know, challenges and that's actually been how I've learned the most. I've learned from others over the years that way. So I like to pay it forward if I can. You know, that reminds me, you had a great quote, Stephanie, in, um, in a relativity blog post where you had said, you're going to make a lot of mistakes, be transparent and own them, be yourself, make work fun. You spend too much time here to be unhappy. And I love that because it's about e-discovery, but it's not about e-discovery at the same time. That's correct. I do make funny and mistakes. And for some of them, I, I'll actually, especially with something minor, I'll say, here's what I did. And I'll send it sometimes to our, you know, paralegal team and stuff, because it makes people feel like, okay, look, nobody died because there was this, you know, I forgot to send text file, or, you know, pick, pick whatever it was. It's an easy fix. And yeah, I'm going to overanalyze it myself. But in the scheme of things, we're not making break of the case with this kind of stuff. So there's no need to stress. What are some of the common mistakes you see out there in the industry that, you know, you wish you could just kind of just grab everybody and say, stop doing this? Oh, gosh, common mistakes. I mean, well, the one fresh in my mind still and always will be is going back to not agreeing to production formats upfront, whether it's in a protocol or even informally, the amount of time spent trying to dig through sometimes what is sent to us, it can be painful. I mean, it's an example I gave recently was, and people laughed because they said, you're so new to the industry, you don't even remember when this is commonplace, but we had like 3,000 PDFs sent to us. They were bait stamped in the PDF, but the file name was like ScanDoc12345. So in order for me to get that in our system in a way people are used to, it took a lot of, well, I didn't have to open 3000 of them, thankfully, but it took a lot of, you know, Excel formulas to try to back into it. And then QC, it would have been resolved if we could have just asked, can you either not bait stamp them at all and we'll do it ourselves or put the Bates number in the file name? I mean, just something simple. That's one example, but it's the not planning ahead piece is really what it comes down to. Some of that's probably intentional, though, right? Do you ever sit there wondering, like, are they are they just doing this to mess with me? 
I've noticed some of the times we see it, it's, I don't think it is intentional. I think it's, they just don't have the capability sometimes to do it. And then I see this a lot with third parties and there's not a lot we can do with that one. But if we don't have something in place, there's still, everyone's still going to get something nice and pretty and organized because I don't want to do it twice. How often are you being brought in with the lawyers at either Rule 16 or Rule 26 conferences to discuss? I mean, to me, I feel like the e-discovery team really should be litigation support, attorneys, and the business folks. And that makes that triangle is the perfect e-discovery team. So, I mean, are, are you not being brought into all of these or, or what do you, what happens when these types of issues come up? Well, it took some time, but yes, I have been included a lot earlier in the process and I've been seeing any, you know, protocol drafts before anything's even sent out. It's just good to know what's going on in the cases because it's eventually coming my way anyway. So it took six plus years maybe to get to that point, but it's pretty consistent now that I, I get included early enough on to help make a difference. It's interesting. So as other people are entering in this field, which there's a lot of them, and you've got other counterparts in litigation support who are just starting out. Is there advice that you would give to them, given your years of experience doing this to say, look, if I can give you three, sorry, Jared, I'm going to do it. Three gold nuggets, right? Sorry. If I can give you. (laughs) Exactly. I seem to slip it in every time, Stephanie. If there's like three things that you could tell folks to say, look, if you're going to be really, really successful, these are the three things that you should be aware of, that you should do, that you should repeat every time in order to be the best that you could be. I'm going to take that and change it a little bit. So in order to kind of get to the point where you can be your best, if you're starting out, you don't know what you don't know yet. And that's where I'm huge on the networking component and whether it is meeting people in person, or even if it's just watching or listening to podcasts from people in the industry, you start to build up some, you know, patterns like, okay, so this is some of the big issues everybody has, or here's some of the challenges people have fixed over the years. And then when you start running into those, you know who to reach out to. So one of my biggest things is I know what I don't know now, I guess it's a weird way to put it, but if anything comes up that involves, you know, privacy for, you know, GDPR, immediately asking somebody who knows, because that's, that's a full-time job keeping up with that, you know, myself. And I don't have time to do that. Same with, you know, forensics. Like when it comes down to, you know, collection questions. Yes, I know like a tiny amount, but I'm not the forensic expert. I'm going to go reach out to, you know, somebody on, you know, a BDO's team, for example, that has a whole global team that does this. That's always kind of the biggest piece of advice. Don't pretend that you know just to sound like you're smarter than you are because it's going to backfire. I might spend some time researching it before I throw in the towel, but knowing when it's out of your wheelhouse is is huge. There's just too many moving parts in this industry. The second way I think to just show value to is automating basic stuff. When I started, I brought a bunch of my old macros with me. And I had one that literally just made a list of file names in a folder. I mean, something I did a million times before and didn't really think much of it, but I almost made someone cry because she had just spent 10 hours typing file names into a document 
and we did it in two minutes. And that's when I realized, oh, I was just starting. People didn't really even know who I was, but that kind of, you know, value add kind of turned into how I became like the resident Excel nerd, you know, just along the way. So I know that's two. I'm trying to think of a, a third one here, but I mean, similar to what I just said is I, again, I use what's at my disposal as much as possible. So, you know, Word, Excel, Adobe, I hate to admit it took me so long to learn Adobe Actions existed. Like I finally started using them in like 2018 and they're life changing. So if you've never used those and you use Adobe a lot, that's uh, there's a pro tip. And because of that, having, you know, these little workflows I created, I then was able to teach others. And then we would do, you know, monthly lunch and learns for a while and add, you know, in the relativity training I did, you kind of just set yourself out as a internal expert on these topics and then it leads to external opportunities to speak i love both of those i mean the second one i think the point is really maximize the value of your existing technology right yep. daniel and i believe it or not a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the value of a mail merge you know and it, it yeah. tried to explain it to you know somebody who is much younger than us who had never heard of it before yeah. right and there are so many features that even Excel and Word have built in that most of our our people don't know how to how to maximize. And so I think that's a great point. And the, and the first one about networking is just so critical, especially in today's day and age when we're not getting together in person as much as we used to. And building that network, especially virtually, is, is just critical. Right. And, you know, I, I think that's just a really great message. You're right. There isn't, is it as much in person? The silver lining out of, you know, the pandemic is I joined so many random virtual events, especially with different like women in e-discovery chapters. So now I got to know a lot of the New York chapter, the Miami chapter, the L.A. chapter, and I might not have met some of these people, you know, otherwise. All right. So this wouldn't be an episode, Jared, I think, if we didn't bring up generative AI. I mean, it literally comes up with all of our guests. So blame me, Jared. I'm the one bringing it up this time. But you know, Stephanie, I, I couldn't help but notice it was like, I think about two weeks ago, you you posted on LinkedIn about how you essentially asked chat GPD this, what are some e-discovery Valentine's Day puns and that you weren't disappointed. It was hysterical. So, so first I have to tell you that the one where you're the metadata to my document production incomplete without you. I mean, you had me at metadata. I mean, literally, I mean, that was amazing. My favorite one in the list as well. <laughs> so I have to ask you though, right? So I mean, but these are so the the AI was so uh, understanding of e-discovery humor, it was ridiculous. I mean, I'd issue a litigation hold on our love to make sure it never gets deleted. I mean, seriously, I mean that's crazy, right? So my so my serious question for you though on this, right, is is where do you see this going in e-discovery in legal technology and can we benefit from it somehow to reduce overall costs and be maybe just a little bit nicer to everybody I, I think what you just alluded to is exactly where it's going it's going to change pricing models for the way some billing works i think because if you can this is a real real story so i'm going to be building a house and i didn't feel like going to 19 places on the internet to figure out the whole process i need I went to chat GPT and said, explain to me like a 10 year old, how building a new home is gonna work. And it, nine out of 10 of the points it did were almost spot on to what I eventually then learned, you know, later on. And I think that's what's gonna happen in the legal industry. That might be the starting point for a lot of 
research. But people have to know it's not you, you have to check it though still. You can't just say this is this is right and move on. So there's still gonna be the human aspect, but instead of spending three hours, you know, researching, maybe your starting point is three minutes of typing your question into something, you know, like chat GPT and then pivoting from there with the rest of the research. I think that might be one um, big way. And if that's the case, that's gonna change, you know, if I was a client and I see 10 hours of black legal research billing and I want to question a bill, I might ask, do you have whatever the, you know, Westlaw AI is and did you use that? Or are you just, you know, trying to rack up fees? Uh, so I think that'll be one of the big conversations that comes out of it. The second one's going to be training and making sure people know how to use it, not just technically, but ethically. I think that's going to be a big, area. I've played with it quite a bit. I wanted to see how close it got to creating Excel formulas. And again, like four out of five, it did well. The fifth one was more complex and it just butchered it. So again, though, if you're new to something, why not see what you get first and then pivot from there? That's so cool. And what's the interest level? What What's the interest level has it been with the attorneys that you work with? Have they been coming to you with questions, with requests? Have they been, you know, asking about it? It's very mixed. So the ones who we, we've all talked about it are the ones that are always kind of up to date and, you know, the latest your tech and think it's, you know, fascinating. We saw, I've saw it slowly leak into emails, uh, forward it from actually like the partner level from people. Again, they're more in the loop though on new tech no one's asking though do we need to use this it's more of you know check this out look at how this is being incorporated into you know other programs more general awareness but yeah there's a lot of work that needs to be done there but it's going to be interesting because i think this is a game changer you know this is already changing how my friend who's a teacher is having students write essays. I mean, it's already incorporated in the classrooms. They're going to use it. You might as well embrace it. So what age is that, that they're incorporating it? 12. That's phenomenal. I so, think that's fantastic. Yeah, she, she said, we already know you got, you, you went out there and did this. So here, here, your assignment is use chat GPT to, you know, start the essay and then show me what you edited after it. Like, yeah, they were going to do it anyway. Right. And also, Kind of takes away the, uh, you know, the glamour of I'm using it and you don't know. So there's that. Any other technology predictions for this year? You know, I still think that's probably the biggest one that's going to be talked about everywhere. AI has been in the news for years. I think this is the first time, though, people are really grasping AI in this sense of it. Because when it comes down to all the technology we have, it's still sometimes a battle to get people to use predictive coding models, you know, active learning, pick whatever you want to call it. Because there's that unknown factor, like we want to see more transparency around it. And that's something I've talked about a lot too. Of all of the, you know, platforms out there right now, that we need more transparency, like with these processes. And that's how I can get buy-in. With people, if I can say this is why this document, that the system thinks this is relevant because of this, and if if someone can eventually incorporate, you know, the generative AI with that process, that's kind of like a next level right there too. I mean, other than that, I think privacy is 
becoming, you know, back in the spotlight even more so with California. Just what I think I might understand what they're doing, it changes and I'm back to uh, having to re-research everything. I think just the same thing I, I keep hearing for years, it's people and retention. There's still a lot of people moving around and you know, hiring is taking a lot longer than I think a lot of people predicted. Let me ask you one question. The impact that we are seeing at the tail end of of this pandemic, have have you seen how that's changing from your perspective, legal technology? Is there is it the forms of uh, the data types or the or the volume of data you're seeing on the plaintiff side? Because I have to imagine because a lot of the requests are going to be text messages, they're going to be IMs, they're going to be apps on the phone, et cetera. Are you seeing a lot more of that? Yes. We have not had to do any, say, Teams collections yet. And I say yet because the way our cases work, sometimes I'm working on cases that were filed in 2015. Well, Teams didn't exist, it, you know. But for new clients, you know, we're, we're actually in the middle of a collection right now. And the data sources are very consistently now, you know, text messages, of course, but, you know, WhatsApp, Slack, a lot more, you know, Google Drive type shared sites, you know, Dropbox, Box, whatever, pick your, pick whichever one. And a lot less heavily, heavily reliant on, you know, network servers, for example. That's a ton of data we'd always collect from a network server. And while we might still be collecting the virtual equivalent of that, it's, and that aspect is a little bit smaller, but when you factor in having to maybe collect the whole laptop or the whole phone or that, it's, it kind of evens out. And a lot of times people are surprised where we might be producing the same amount of data as our opposing counsel or more in some of our cases in the past. So it's definitely a lot of different data sources growing and it's a process again, I kind of have been trying to keep up with, but know when to, you know, we try to outsource that as much as possible because it's, I don't want to sign the affidavit because I'm not an expert. So there's that aspect too. Goes back to your point before, know what you do know and know what you don't and don't pretend to be an expert, which I think is incredibly valuable advice. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on to the program today. It's always a pleasure to see you and it's wonderful to have you provide your insight uh, and advice and knowledge to all of our listeners. Thanks for having me and hopefully we'll cross paths in person at some point later this year. I sure hope so. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Thanks. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks for joining us on BDO's Legal Tech Talk podcast. If you're enjoying these podcasts, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe for more episodes. Head over to BDO.com for a list of all our episodes, transcripts, resources cited, and links on how to get in touch with us and continue the conversation. Until next time, this has been another episode of BDO's Legal Tech Talk.